All right, what is up, Summit Late Night? Man, I am glad to be here with you guys. As Brian said, uh, my name is Josh Cook. Man, I had some like good energy off of that, didn't I? That was a good, like I turned around and spun it. I'm trying to conjure it, because you guys, I don't know if you know, but you have a reputation being the 515 of being just like super sleepy as a gathering. It's kind of nice, you're kind of like chill, like it's relaxed, I guess. Sometimes the the 9 a.m. can be a little testy, it's early in the morning, the 10.45, they have like high expectations, but the 5.15, they're just kind of relaxed and chill, and so sometimes it gets a little sleepy, that's sort of the backside of that, but I'm glad that I'm here with you guys tonight, and I'm glad to be preaching round three today. Um, it's so good for us to be at the Summit Church right now. I, I just can't even explain how much of a blessing that is to us. Uh, my wife, Sarah, and uh, my daughter, Evie, we moved up here uh, six months ago, and we've been with the Summit just learning and studying from you guys. It's been such a blessing to hang out with your staff and to learn from those guys who are really just uh, leading a wonderful church, a group of, of you guys here in the city, doing something in Denver that is, that is uh, in some ways challenging, that is kind of... Uh, that flows against much of the culture and the identity of the city that we focus on Jesus and proclaim him above anything else, uh, that we're chasing after him, trying to follow him. And you guys are doing that here at the summit, and I just want to say thanks. I know that you may not have had a vote as to whether or not we were allowed to come in, but I want to say thank you anyway uh, for the way in which you guys have welcomed us. You guys have just loved my wife and my little baby girl and me so well, and it has been just just the best possible way I can think of to enter a new city where we don't know anybody and where we feel like God's called us to do something that's next to impossible. So I want to say thank you so much. Can I actually start right now by praying for you guys? Dear God, we thank you so much for the Summit Church. God, we thank you for what it's meant to every person in this room, whether this is their first time or they've been here for years. God, we know that uh, you are making an impact in this city through the Summit Church that you are uh, empowering them to love their neighbors, that you are challenging them to chase after you, that you are building unique, special, and uh, beautiful communities here in the Summit Church, God. And uh, I just thank you for the blessing that it's been to me and my family. God, right now, I humbly ask that you would give me your words to speak and give us all ears to hear the message that you have for us. We love you, God. Thank you for loving us. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, I have one feeling that I hate more than I think anything else. Uh, I like to think of myself as someone who's pretty decent at life most times. I'm pretty good at it. That's not a joke. I don't know why there's chuckling happening. I'm doing all right, I think. And I'm pretty competent at most things. But every once in a while, I bump into something that is just a glaring weakness or incompetency that I have. And it just sort of burns me up inside. I was thinking about this. I'm kind of like a a jack-of-all-trades, master of none. Like, I can give a good shot at almost anything, which is why anything breaks in our house. And my wife's like, oh, Josh, you can fix this light switch, right? And I'm like, no, actually, I would electrocute myself, so I'm not going to try that. Uh, but I, I feel like there's not a ton of things that I'm just completely incompetent at, but there are a few. And so I think that preaching should be a little bit confessional and you should see that preachers are real people and they make mistakes. But since the summits preachers never actually make any mistakes, I'm going to take a day right now and show you guys that there are some preachers that do that. And I want to just open with three of my most glaring incompetencies. Okay. (laughs) This may be unprecedented in all of preaching whatsoever. So hold on. Uh, first off. I cannot complete adequately the basic human adult task of making a phone call and not sounding completely ignorant. So uh, 
I don't know what it is. I think I read people pretty well in like their, their body language and stuff like that. And so when I don't have that, I just fall apart or something. But I'm just really, really not good at it. I can think of this past week, actually. I uh, called up another pastor in West Colfax just to say, hey, uh, we're coming to plant a church in your neighborhood. And I want to meet you because we're going to be working alongside each other. And so I called him up. And uh, it was ringing, ringing, ringing. And I was like, okay, this guy's not going to answer. And so I went ahead and started prepping myself for the voicemail. Because you need to know what you're going to say going into one of those. You don't want to just get lost rambling. And then he picked up. It was like the last ring possible. He picked up. And I was like, uh, oh, uh, hey, this is Josh. Josh, Josh Cook, actually. And, well, I mean, you don't know me. But I am uh, going to come start a church in your neighborhood. And uh, we're going to be a brand new church. And I just I wanted to talk to you because you're an old church. And, uh, and you're kind of like an old pro in the neighborhood. Well, I don't know how old you are, but I'm just like saying uh, that you guys have been there longer than we have, which is really no time at all. And so uh, I just really wanted to call and reach out to you, and maybe we could be friends, and I could buy you a cup of coffee, and it'd be wonderful. And yeah, and that's literally how I left it. And there was like 30 seconds of silence on the other end because he was flabbergasted because he's never probably had a phone call that bad in his entire life. And... Uh, we moved on, but I, I'm just I'm really not good at it, and I don't think it's a skill that I can even overcome at this point. I'm giving up. Uh, the second thing is that uh, I am really bad at locking my car, and uh, I know that seems like something you should just like intuitively do, or there's even little tips and tricks to like get yourself to remember, but I just can't wrap my mind around it. We've uh, lived in urban environments for the past 10 years, my wife and I, and we've had street parking for all of those 10 years, and uh, I would love to tell you that over those 10 years that my car has been broken into five times, but I can't because I left it unlocked. And so really, I have to say that my car welcomed in criminals and thieves five times at least over those uh, 10 years. And uh, they've stolen two GPSs from us. They've stolen uh, 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 iPod Touch. And uh, the worst one, though, was that someone broke into my car and stole my owner's manual. I'm not really sure why. I don't know what the black market retail value is on something like that, but I think it was just sort of mean-spirited, you know? They were, like, walking by, and they're like, dude, this car is always unlocked. Let's see what he's got in there. And then, oh, man, there's nothing in here. So they took the owner's manual. And I just have this image right now. I mean, probably it's, like, late Sunday afternoon. They're probably just hanging out right now, listening to Oasis songs on my old iPod and flipping through my owner's manual, reading about the Jeep anti-lock braking system and laughing and laughing, right? Um, Yeah, so the final one, and this is where I lose all credibility with you guys uh, being Denverites. Um, I cannot grow a beard. I cannot grow a decent beard, and it's sad. And I'm admitting to you guys this for the first time, because I just realized this about a couple months ago. Uh, When I came to Colorado, I decided I would grow a beard because I wanted to fit in. And uh, I started growing one. I was about four months into it when, uh, actually, Andy cut off his giant, like, three-pound beard, right? And uh, he shaved it off for Christmas and uh, I didn't see him for a little while. He came back two weeks later. I was four months into my beard at this time, and his beard was, I kid you not, twice as long as mine in the two weeks that he had been growing. And it was such a shameful experience for me <laughs> that I decided to give up and go with this half-man beard. Like, this is, this is not, I haven't shaved in three days. This is life for me, and I'm just hanging with it, all right? Um, now, these are kind of silly examples, uh, but we all have these things in our life that we're incompetent at. I think it's a part of being unique in like the fabric of humanity, that we all have strengths, things that we're really good at, but at the same time, we all have these like weaknesses. 
I think at the same time, we all have a, either a vague or a specific sense that God has a calling and a purpose for our life. That we're not just here on the planet Earth to sort of fumble around directionless for our life, but God has something, something for us, something that he wants us to do, something for his will that he's trying to accomplish through us. And I think that very often when we look at that and when we recognize that, we see that that's where a lot of our incompetencies lie, that whatever it is that God is doing in and through our lives are the very same things that we feel the most weak at, the most incompetent at, the most underqualified for, the most inadequate for. And I think that Moses felt the exact same way in our story today. And so we're going to be taking a look at Exodus chapter 4. And uh, just as a recap, if you haven't been here for the past few weeks of Exodus, uh, the story opens with Moses being put in a basket, saved from uh, death at the hand of the Egyptians. And then he actually gets adopted by an Egyptian princess and raised as Egyptian royalty. And then... uh, After growing up that way, he sort of had this weird sort of identity crisis moment where he saw an Egyptian who was harming an Israelite, and he actually killed the Egyptian man, he murdered him, and then fled out into the wilderness, wandered out into the wilderness, not knowing what was going to be next for him, right? When he wandered out there, he actually found a family out there, found a wife, had some kids, started watching sheep, and was out there until he was 80 years old. 80 years old. Now, when I'm 80, I'm picturing like myself somewhere on the beach, right? And I'm just, I have this like old man leathery skin, you know? And I like basically never wear a shirt again. And I just wear the bucket hat and the old man like swimming trunks, right? That are kind of like big and baggy and float around you. And that's my life. And grandkids will come to me and I will tell them completely untrue stories. And like, that's the dream. But what's strange here is that Moses is not, like, finishing his life at 80. In fact, we've only been through three chapters of Exodus, and he's already 80 years old. And we have the rest of Exodus and the next two books, and really sort of the beginning of Joshua, that are all about Moses' life. He's got a lot more life to live at 80 years old. So at 80 years old, God shows up, and he says, I know you want to relax, and I know you want to sort of retire, but right now I have a mission for you. And here's what it is. I want you to go back to that country the one that you fled in shame after murdering someone. I want you to go back to that country. I want you to go to the leader, the highest authority in that country, and I want you to say to him, okay, you know these people that you have enslaved that do all of your work for you, that basically your entire Egyptian economy is based on? You know those people? I want you to let them go for free. I want you to send them away. You don't need them anymore. And then, Moses, after that, it's not like you just get to have a conversation and then enter into retirement. No, then I want you to lead these people through the wilderness from Egypt to a place that you've never been to before. And oh, by the way, uh, these people don't know you. You basically only share an ethnicity with them. That's kind of your only connection. But I want you to be the leader of my people. Now, naturally, Moses had some reservations, Right? He was a little bit concerned about this after hearing this call. And so that's actually where our story picks up. So God was revealing this to him through the burning bush. And this is sort of Moses' reply. So I think first of all we see that Moses asks for a hall pass. Moses asks for a hall pass. Then Moses answered, But behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, The Lord did not appear to you. Now remember when you were in school, uh, you were in the hallway, and there were basically one of two different scenarios in which you were in the hallway. One was where you were supposed to be in the hallway, and the other one was where you were not supposed to be in the hallway. You were wandering, you were skipping class, whatever it was. And uh, it was like a radically different feeling, 
right? You're in the same hallway, but you are radically different through it because one, if you're not supposed to be in the hallway, you're kind of like slinking past every door. You're kind of like hiding behind lockers and peering around corners or hiding in the bathroom or something like that, trying to make sure that you weren't caught, right? But if you were supposed to be in the hallway, if you were sent on a mission, maybe to like deliver a cake to another, a piece of cake to another teacher's class, or maybe you had like a post-it note and you were sort of like a human text message, like you felt confident, right? You were like, this hallway is mine. This is where I'm supposed to be. I don't have to be in class. This is my life right now. And you're sort of sauntering through like this. You're peeking in on classrooms like, hey, Billy, how's class? I'm out here in the hallway. It's the good life. You should check it out if you get a chance. And you're just sort of wandering through. You're like waiting for that moment when a teacher administrator comes out and he's like, hey, what are you doing in the hallway? And you're like, boom, read it and weep. Dr. Upton, check this out. I'm supposed to be here. All right. This is what Moses was looking for, because there are basically two scenarios in which he could walk into this uh, temple that Pharaoh or this uh, palace that Pharaoh lived in. There was one where he was a crazy old man rambling about some god that nobody's ever heard of and trying to get Pharaoh to do something crazy that he doesn't want to do at all. And then there was another situation where he walks in as someone who is communed with the divine who has actually communicated and had a conversation with the creator and sustainer of the entire universe. They're two radically different ways to walk into the room. And I often wonder myself, like, as Christians, one of the hardest things to do is to live in a culture and to to live around people, most of which don't necessarily believe in God or may not even believe in the same God that you have, and to be able to walk up to them and tell them that you've had a profound spiritual experience that you've had communication through the word and through the Holy Spirit with the creator of all things. I find that very often when I'm in these situations, I don't walk up with that confidence. I don't walk up knowing that the God of the universe is behind me. I don't walk up resting in his authority. I walk up timidly saying like, well, uh, you know, it's, it's been good in my life. Maybe it'd be good for you. No, we as believers, as followers of Christ are sent by the living, true, and only God. So Moses has this very same sort of fear and, and uh, restraint that I think we walk into very often with the same situation. So God gives Moses three things. First off, God gives Moses a subversive magic trick. God gives Moses a subversive magic trick. In verse two, it says, the Lord said to him, what is that in your hand? He said, a staff. And he said, throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground and it became a serpent. And Moses ran from it. But the Lord said to Moses, put out your hand and catch it by the tail. So he put out his hand and caught it, and it became a staff in his hand, that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, has appeared to you. I love this little uh, sequence. Now remember that Moses is writing this book many years later, and so all the details uh, are also sort of more interesting because he chose to include them. So somebody's not writing this about Moses. These are, and obviously he was the only one at this whole burning bush interchange. Uh, so he chose to include these details. And so he throws the staff down like, like God told, tells him to do. And then it becomes a snake. And then all of a sudden he's like, ah! And like running away from it, right? As if God created this snake out of his staff to kill Moses in this moment. Like this is God's great plan. It's sort of like at the beginning of an action movie. When like you're watching and in the first 15 minutes like James Bond gets shot or something. And you're like, well... I guess this is the shortest James Bond movie of all time. He's definitely dead. There's no extenuating circumstances. And this is the end of the entire 50-year-long series right here in the first 15 minutes of this movie. No, 
Moses doesn't die here. There's no reason for him to be afraid of the snake. I feel like God is kind of, you know, face palm in this moment, right? Um, so the three signs that God gives to Moses are the, the three sort of subversive magic tricks, as I'm calling them, actually all have significance to Pharaoh and to Egypt. And so it begins with this one of the snake. So the snake was actually a symbol of Pharaoh in ancient Egypt. He would wear it on some of its like insignia. Uh, it would be drawn in hieroglyphics. The snake sort of represented Pharaoh. And so by so- showing that Moses had control over this snake, by picking it up by the tail, though it's a dangerous and frightening snake, he was showing that God is actually in control over snakes and God is actually in control over Pharaoh's. It continues on in verse six and says, again, the Lord said to him, put your hand inside your cloak. And he put his hand inside his cloak. When he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. Then God said, put your hand back inside your cloak. So he put his hand back inside his cloak. And when he took it out, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. Now, back in those days, leprosy and other skin diseases were actually a sign of punishment for hubris and pride. Uh, specifically against God or the gods as they imagined them, right? So uh, what Moses was doing here was showing Pharaoh what would be the consequence of his pride. If If Pharaoh was to push back and say, no, 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 I'm more powerful than your God, this is a punishment. God was in a way threatening Pharaoh for disobedience and for pride. Finally, in verse eight, it says, if they will not believe you, God said, or listen to the first sign, they may believe the latter sign. If they will not believe even these two signs or listen to your voice, you shall take some water from the Nile and pour it onto dry ground, and the water that you shall take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. Now, the Nile was everything to the Egyptians. They based their entire life and their entire economy on the Nile. It would flood every year, and that's how they would water all of their crops, uh, they used it for trade, sending boats up and down. Uh, they watered their livestock off of it. They got their own drinking water off of it. They fished from it. I mean, the Egyptian like country would be nothing without the Nile. It was everything to them. And it was also represented as a deity for them. So they had this god named Happy, perhaps, I think is the name. I don't know how you pronounce it, but that's what we're going to call it for now. So uh, they had this god Happy, and uh, every year the pharaoh would actually go and make sacrifices to make sure that Happy was pleased, or Happy was happy, if you will, um, with the Egyptians. That joke has not gotten a laugh all day, but I just like keep bringing it in. Like I'm just I'm sticking with it, so I'm sorry about that. Uh, The Egyptians had this sort of strange view where their gods were simultaneously characters and they had personalities and they could be drawn in hieroglyphics as like human form. But then at the same time, they were also represented in nature. And so Happy was simultaneously a character and uh, the Nile itself. And they worshipped Happy so that uh, the Nile would continue to provide for Egypt. And so by taking a part of the Nile and dumping it out on the ground and turning it into blood, Moses was showing Pharaoh that it wasn't actually this false god that supplied providence for Egypt, but it was actually the one true god. He was in control over, he could even turn this Nile that their entire life was based on into something useless and even harmful to them like blood. Now, when I first read through this story, I imagined that, uh, I was kind of asking myself, like, why would God give Moses these magic tricks, right? And I pictured it kind of like David Blaine style, right? Like Moses walks in and he puts down a boom box and then he presses play and it's like, and then Moses walks in and he like rips off a cape and he's like, I'm here, it's a regular staff, right? And he throws it on the ground, boom, it's a snake. And everybody's like, ooh. And then, you know, his next trick, he's like, this looks like a regular hand, right? Somebody want to come, I need a volunteer to check it out. It's a regular hand. 
Actually, it has leprosy. Boom, right there. Let me touch you with it. Watch out. And then he puts it back in. And he's like, no, it's fine again. And then like the big climax was the Nile thing, right? So he was like, does anybody in the room have a cup full of the Nile? Anybody, anybody in here? And they bring it up. And he's like, this is just regular water, right? You can take a sip out of it. It's pretty good. Actually, it's blood. And then everybody's mind was just blown. And they were like, Moses, you're so awesome. Um, but since we now all know that David Blaine is not like, you know, king of the universe or we don't worship him like a god, this is probably not a good strategy, right? So instead, uh, when I studied these a little bit further, I realized that these were not just like magic tricks to show how cool God was or little parlor tricks. Now, these were ways where God was showing that he was in control over all of Egypt. He was... He was uh, sort of subversively taking down these principalities, taking down these like building blocks of the Egyptian economy and the Egyptian world to show them that he was actually in control. Not their pharaoh, not their false gods, not their pride in who they were. No, God was in control of it all. I kind of wonder if, uh, if God wanted to, to send sort of the same sort of signal to us as Denverites, what that would look like. Because remember, things like the Nile, they're not, they're not bad. Uh, Pharaoh wasn't necessarily like bad or good. He wasn't following after God, but uh, you know, these were just sort of like institutions in the culture. I wonder what it would look like if God wanted to get our attention in the same way. Would he send something to show us that our health and our well-being that we just work so hard to maintain and to keep up and to, to chase after, would he show us how sort of shallow and how, uh, how quickly that can be taken away from us? through like injury or sickness or something like that. Maybe he'd want to show us that our jobs that we place so much of our satisfaction and self-worth and security in, how they can instantly be taken away from us by circumstances completely out of our control. Maybe he would just find a way to show how we think that we're completely in control of our surroundings and of our environment and of our well-being, but in fact, we're dependent on him for every single thing. This is what God gave to Moses to show to Pharaoh. They were small, symbolic gestures of God's power and God's providence. Next, God gives Moses a reminder of who he is. God gives Moses a reminder of who he is. So next, Moses was like, Oh my Lord, I am not eloquent, either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. And I love God's reply here. He says, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore go and I will be with your mouth and I will teach you what you shall speak. God is kind of like a sassy mom here, right? He's like, who do you think made your mouth? I brought you into this world. I could take you out, right? Moses brings up these complaints and God's like, I made you. Do you not think I know what you're capable of? Do you not think that I know your weaknesses, your failures, your incompetencies, your inadequacies? Do you not think that I know? I made you this way. And I think in our lives, we have the very same response sometimes. Maybe God's calling us to, to have an awkward conversation with, about God uh, to one of our coworkers, and we're like, uh, God, uh, see, you may not understand, but... Uh, I took a personality test, and it turns out that I'm an introvert. And so because of that... Uh, this whole talking to other people about awkward topics, not really my bag. You need one of those extroverted people that are like good at awkward situations and making other people feel uncomfortable because that is kind of more in their wheelhouse, right? I feel like sometimes God looks down on us and he says, do you not know who made you an introvert? Do you not know who made you that way? Do you not think that I know what you're capable of? 
And yet I still chose to put you in this situation and call you to this task. God knows exactly who we are. And in fact, he chose Moses, not based on who Moses was, but based on who God was. He chose Moses, not based on who Moses was, but based on who God was and who God is. And the same thing is true for each and every one of us in this room right now. God has chose you and put you where you are for a reason in the relationships that you have, in the job that you have, in the neighborhood that you have, not based on who you are and what you can do, but based on who God is and what he can do through you. Finally, God gives Moses what he needs before he even asks. Moses gives it one last try here and he says, Oh my Lord, please send someone else. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses and he said, Is there not Aaron your brother, the Levite? I know that he can speak well. Behold, he is coming out to meet you and when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. You shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth and I will be with your mouth and with his mouth and will teach you both what to do. He shall speak to you Speak for you to the people. He shall be your mouth, and you shall be as God to him. And take in your hand this staff with which you shall do the signs. So Moses makes one last plea here. He says, God, God, I've given you all the excuses that I have, but now I'm just asking you, please, please send someone else. And what's fascinating here is that uh, uh, two things, really. First of all, that we have no idea what Moses's and Moses and Moses's and Aaron's relationship was before that. Sorry, that's a little tricky right there. So uh, Moses's and Aaron's relationship, we have no idea what it was. Uh, we know that Moses was raised by the Egyptians, not by his Israelite mother. Um, and so we don't know if Moses and Aaron had never spoken before or if they knew of each other or what was going on. And uh, we also don't know, now that Moses has been out in the wilderness for years and years, uh, what their contact has been, if any, up until this moment. I'm inclined to think that there was none. And so Aaron wanders out into the wilderness coming out to meet Moses. My question is, does he even know that Moses exists? Like, did God just say, hey, Aaron, you need to walk out into the wilderness? Does he know that he has an estranged brother out there living that has this whole other lifestyle after he murdered someone and, and went out there? Aaron, uh, we have no idea. We have no context. Moses is writing the story and not Aaron. Um, but what's astounding is that Aaron was already on his way. God says that Aaron is coming to meet you right now. He's already on his way. And Moses had absolutely no idea about it. He had no idea that Aaron was already maybe even halfway or maybe even all the way out to meet him. There was no Find My Friends app or uh, even like a postal service where Aaron could say, hey, I'm coming out to stay with you. Blow up the air mattress, right? Like <laughs> Moses just was completely clueless. What's astounding about this, I think, is that God had already sent Aaron before Moses even asked. You see, God is not really in the habit of waiting until we ask for what we need. He's in the habit of knowing what we need before we do and already taking care of it. He's in the habit of working in the background in ways that we can't know or understand to give us exactly what we need, when we need it, before we even know that we need it. So then in that moment, when we finally understand, God, man, I'm, I'm so incompetent for this task that you put before me. How in the world am I going accomplish to accomplish it? I'm going to need your help. In that moment, he doesn't say, okay, I can do that. He says, I've already done that. It's already happening to you, for you. I've worked all this out in the background so that you might be able to accomplish what I've called you to do, and this person or this thing or this skill is going to help you out in doing it. God's not in the habit on, of waiting on us. 
He's working out his will in and through us in ways that we can't even see or understand. So just as a recap, God chose Moses for something that he cannot do, and Moses complains. And through this experience, God changes, changes Moses' outlook for the better. He changes his perspective to understand who God is and why he called him to do this mission. Now that is Moses' story, but what does it say for our story? I believe that this story has implications for each and every one of us here today. First off, if you're in this room and you don't ever sort of bump into your inadequacies, if you aren't inadequate, then I would say that your dream is. If you aren't inadequate, then your dream is. And that may sound like some sort of Yogi Berra type confusing phrase, um, but to me it means that uh, I think that if, you're, if your dream, if you feel like what God is telling you to do with your life seems sort of attainable and it's based out of your skill set and what you're good at and what you can accomplish, then that dream is probably too small. We never see stories through the Bible where God calls someone out, like Moses, and he says, Moses, the best thing that you can do for me is to live a good, normal life. I really want you to have a three-bedroom house and a white picket fence and 2.5 kids and a dog and just live the good life. Like, that's what I want for you, Moses. That's, that's my God-sized plan for your life. No, that never happens. It never happens. You never see that in scripture. And in fact, what's amazing is that Moses actually had that, right? He had a family. He had a good job. He was able to put food on the table. He was able to come home to his kids and his wife every night and just sort of celebrate with them like he was living the good life. And at 80 years old, God bursts into his life once more and says, Moses, I need you to do something. And I don't want you to abandon this good life that you have. That's not what I'm all about. But I have something bigger for you. I have something better for you. I know in my own story, uh, when we were living in New Orleans, I was working at church there, and uh, I felt pretty, pretty competent and pretty qualified at what I was doing. People were telling me I was doing a good job. I was able to accomplish everything. I didn't feel like I was just uh, totally inadequate for what I was doing there, and uh, everything was kind of great. And then we moved up here to Denver, and uh, felt like God was calling us to plant a church up here in Denver. And after moving here and after being here for six months, I'm realizing progressively more and more just how inadequate I am for this calling that God has placed on my life. Just how unqualified I am for what he's calling me to do. You know, I've never planted a church before. I've never done anything like this. I have no experience. There's other guys that have a lot more experience than I have. Um, in fact, just the other night, I, uh, I feel like I was faced with one of my my planting sort of inadequacies, and, and this may sound silly, but it, I think it's true, but I uh, was at the dinner table. We had some folks over for dinner, and uh, we had finished eating, and I was like, hey, why don't we all move into the living room, and we can go sit on the couch? So I grabbed my drink, and I headed into the living room, and then I turned around, and no one was there. And I was like, huh, so God, you called me to lead a church, and I can't even lead three people from the dining room into the living room. Like, are you sure this is the right fit for me? Um, even yesterday, I'd been working on this sermon the entire week, and uh, we were about to go out to dinner with some friends, and so it was about, like, I think 4 o'clock, and I was like, okay, I'm going to run through it one more time. And I ran through it, and I just absolutely hated it. And then I had, like, a, a mini panic attack saying, like, God, like, what am I going to do? I'm going to get up there and just embarrass myself and you for three different gatherings tomorrow, and it's going to be terrible. And, and once you start one, there's no situation where Brian, or I don't think it would get so bad that Brian would be like, nope, I'm pulling you, you know. We're bringing in the relief, pit, the relief preacher right now or something like that. And so, um, but I'm sitting there thinking, I'm like, God, man, this is, 
this is stressing me out. This is uh, challenging me in ways that I haven't been challenged before, and I feel like I'm not the right guy for this. And this is just my one sermon. Eventually, you're going to have me preaching every single week. God, why didn't you bring somebody else in who's better at this? Why didn't you bring somebody else in who's more qualified, who's more competent, who's more adequate to the task that you have for me? I realized in preaching this sermon to myself that through this experience of feeling incompetent, of feeling inadequate, that I've never actually been closer to God than I am right now, that I've never felt a deeper intimacy with him, that I've never been able to see as well the ways that he's working in me and the way that he's working in his world, right? I've never felt that closer connection to him. And the reason is because I'm completely inadequate for the task that he's called me to, which means I rely on him every single day just to make it through the day without having a breakdown. I rely on him for every single thing. And it's brought us closer together than we ever have been before. I realize that God is not in the business of putting the perfect to work. He is in the business of working on imperfect people while they carry out his perfect plan for the world. Think of that again. God is not in the business of putting the perfect to work. He is in the business of working on imperfect people while they carry out his perfect plan for the world. Paul says it best this way, and he's speaking of Jesus when he says, he said to me, so, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. What about you? Maybe you feel this strange impulse to care for someone around you. Maybe it's as simple as that, and and you see your neighbor, and you know that they're going through something hard. They're facing some sort of challenge, and uh, you feel like God's calling you to do something so small and simple like bring them a meal one night and just say, hey, man, I care for you. But you're saying, no, 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 I'm not really like uh, the best cook, and I don't really feel comfortable walking up to somebody I don't know that well and just doing this. Man, God has put you there for a reason. And he's put you there knowing exactly what you're capable of, what you're competent at, what you can do. But he's also put you there knowing exactly what he can do through you. Maybe it's time. And I feel like you sense this in a relationship sometimes, like in a friendship where you see that like, uh, it's time to finally cross that barrier. And you, you, you love God, you love following Jesus, and it's a very important part of your life, but you've held that part of your life back in this relationship. And that relationship is solely based on small talk about the weather and uh, sports and things that ultimately won't matter 10 years, 100 years from now. And yet, the thing that's the most important thing to you in your entire life, you can't broach that subject because you're scared of what will happen to the friendship. Man, I know that it's easy to focus in going into that conversation on what you can't do and what you don't know how to say and what you're not good at. But just know that there's a God that's been working in the background in ways that you probably can't even wrap your mind around. Who knows, you may be, bring up God and your friend may say, man, thank you so much. I've been, work, I've been looking for someone to talk to about this because I've been thinking about this already. Who knows? If God can bring Aaron wandering out in the wilderness to help Moses, I'm sure that he can make people ask existential questions of themselves. Who knows, maybe God is calling you to lead a city group or plan a church 
or adopt a child or serve the homeless or go halfway around the world to tell people about Jesus. I believe that in this room there's a diversity of things that God has called us all to do. That's the beauty of the church, right? We bring all of our things that God has called us to do to serve the kingdom and we bring them together as a church body and then he multiplies them out in ways that we can't even wrap our mind around. Just know that God's calling on you is so much bigger than any incompetency or weakness that you may feel. And remember that our goal is not to be so competent that we don't need God. Our goal is to live in such a way that we are dependent on God for every single thing. Our life is meant to be lived chasing after a dream that is way bigger than us. It's a God-sized dream, and it's something that we could never actually accomplish on our own, but something that only God can bring about. Finally, if you think you aren't good enough, you're right. And you may be sitting in this room and you think to yourself, uh, I'm still sort of figuring out this whole Christianity thing. I've tried everything else and I feel like I don't even fit in here. I feel like, uh, and you may think, I'm not really good enough for this whole Jesus thing. Jesus probably doesn't want a person like me because he knows exactly what I've done. So he couldn't possibly want me to be on his team. He couldn't want to accept me. Can I just share to you that that's like the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ? That's the beginning of the gospel right there, that you aren't good enough. That's how it all begins. You see, I think Christianity often gets misconstrued as a religious system of rights and wrongs. And if you do enough right, then you get to go to heaven and everything's perfect. But the truth is that none of us could ever live up to that. No, the story of Christianity is a perfect God who does everything right all the time, forever, who created human beings, who screw up all the time, who don't get it right, who make mistakes, who have weaknesses, who have incompetencies, who do it wrong, who have been abused, who are broken, who need healing, who are confused in life, who make mistakes, who say the wrong things, who do the wrong things. The story of humans who don't get it right, humans who have failures and incompetencies. And then it's a story of this loving and perfect God sending a son to die on the cross for those very same humans for those very same weaknesses. That's what Jesus' work on the cross is. It's paying the price for our weaknesses, for the ways in which that we've messed up. And so coming to Christianity, in fact, uh, you don't have to be perfect. In fact, it doesn't really work out if you are perfect. No, coming and exploring Christianity begins with recognizing that we are imperfect and we are flawed. And now the same God, this is the strangest twist of fate in the entire story of the history of humankind, where the same God that died on the cross to pay for our weaknesses now wants to engage and employ these weak human beings in his mission to set everything right again. You see, the end goal is where God makes everything perfect forever again. He, he sets everything to rights And he wants to use imperfect people just like us in spite of our incompetencies and our failures to actually enact that perfect will that he has for the world. You have the opportunity. You have the opportunity to accept this free gift that Jesus has given to you. And pray that you would do that tonight. Would you guys pray with me? Dear God, we thank you so much for who you are, God. God, we know who we are. We know that we are broken. We know that we are confused. We know that we are incompetent and inadequate and weak, God, but we know that you are infinitely strong. You are infinitely powerful. 
you are infinitely good, and maybe, maybe most important to us that you are infinitely loving in spite of who we are, God. God, I pray that through this week, through the rest of our lives, God, that you would give us the courage to do what you have called us to do, that you would give us the courage and the strength to be able to step out and trust in who you are as opposed to who we are as we seek to live out our calling from you in our lives, God. And God, I pray uh, that for those of us in this room who are maybe just uh, confused and and curious about you, God, that, that you would show us that uh, it's not anything based out of what we can do. It's not based out of our power. It's not based out of our ability to do what is right, God, but it is based on the way that you died for us so that we might be made right in your eyes, God. God, I pray that you, your character, and who you are guides every single decision and everything that we do, God. Please guide us in that. We love you. And thank you for loving us. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.